recently read about a church in a book called Dangerous Calling by Paul David Tripp. Uh, this church had a pastor who was retiring, and so they were putting together a search committee to find their pastor for the future. And uh, they put out a job posting through all the normal channels, and they got some hits. But there was one in particular that kind of caught the search committee's eyes. And it made everybody on that team really excited. There was an applicant that fit their profile in all the possible ways that they had put put in. And he had all the right training. His, his skill set was unmatched, and his ministry philosophy matched theirs. His resume was also great. It showed that he had a lot of a variety of ministry experience in different settings. So they really liked him, so they sent a team to go hear him preach at his current church and also to kind of see how that church was doing. And so they went, they heard him speak, saw he was a powerful speaker, handled the passage really well, and the preaching reminded them of the pastor who is retiring. So they invited him to preach at their church and then had an interview on the Monday following, and later in the week, they offered him the, the position of senior pastor at the new church. He had everything. He had knowledge and experience and skill. He accepted the position, and everything started great. Like, the church was enthusiastic. Things looked uh, wonderful. They, they, they had hope as a church for the future. Everything seemed to be going pretty well, except it really wasn't. Some people started to notice early on, really, that the pastor's wife wasn't really connecting with anybody in the church and would only go to the events where it seemed like, you know, she had to be there kind of thing. The pastor himself wasn't around the office a whole lot. He'd be in the office on Thursdays, but uh, not really help out with the staff or anything. Didn't really connect with people well. Uh, the two of them didn't invite people to their house or really spend time with anybody socially. After a year, his wife took their kids and went home for a couple of weeks that, to be with her parents, but that kind of stretched out into a month. Wife came back, and not long after that, the pastor was asking for prayers for his family to overcome the quote-unquote normal tensions within families in pastoral ministry. Four more years go by, and people can start to tell that something is, there's something wrong. It's in the pastor's heart, in the family. The pastor and his wife quietly sought out counseling. And then one Saturday afternoon, the head of the elder board got a call asking if there was anybody, any way that someone could fill in to preach for him on the Sunday morning. And you do not ever want to get that call. The elder thought the pastor must have been sick, uh, but he said it was a family emergency. And then on the Monday following that, pastor held an emergency meeting with the leadership, and uh, he kind of just laid out what was going on. His wife had basically given him an ultimatum saying, it's me or your ministry, but you're not able to manage both, not able to handle both. Um, their public life was a lot different than what they were, uh, or you know, than what their actual, you know, their private life was. And she was tired of pretending that things were okay when they weren't. When the church was hiring this pastor, everybody looked at the skills, the experience, the training, but, but they didn't ask all the questions that they should have. They made assumptions about some things. They didn't know his heart as best that you can get to know it. They didn't know his character. They really didn't know the man himself. And they didn't know really his relationship with God. 
Now, none of that is easy to work through and find out, but it is imperative that as we call leaders in the church, whether it's a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, that we, we don't just look at their skills or their knowledge or their training, but we've got to look at their character. Last week, we started this new sermon series in this small New Testament book of Titus. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to the letter of Titus. It's near the back of the Bible. Titus was a young pastor who was a co-worker with Paul, and he was uh, pastoring the church on the small Greek island of Crete. Church was a pretty young church, and so Paul's charge to Titus was to appoint leaders in that church. And so that's the passage that we're going to focus on today and how we can be wise in choosing leaders. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by reading the whole passage, and then we'll just kind of break it down from there. And so we're in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it, as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So there are four areas of qualifications that I kind of see in this passage. The first is within the family. The second, like leadership within the family. The second is the list of characteristics that you don't want to have in your leaders. The third are the characteristics you do want to have. And then the fourth is the most important. But before we dive into those, we've really got to talk about what we're talking about here as we say leader. In this passage, Paul uses two different words for the leader. He calls them an elder and an overseer. In Greek, elder does mean an older man, which some of our elders are older older guys, but um, some are young, like Austin, you know. <laughs> but uh, but within how Paul's writing here, he's really using it as a title. Now, an overseer is defined as somebody who safeguards something or a guardian. And these are used interchangeably. In fact, pastor, elder, overseer, the way that Paul uses them, they kind of all just kind of weave in and out of each other. He just kind of uses um, them interchangeably. So with that in mind, let's look direct at the characteristics. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So Paul starts with blameless. Now, other translations you might have will say something like, they've got to be above reproach. And that just basically means that they're not able to be criticized. Now, I don't know if you've been around people at all, but I would say that one of our, our strong suits is criticizing people. Um, and, and I'm sure that we all have areas where we can be fairly criticized, but um, the idea here here is it, it's that your character, and especially as Paul's talking in this verse, within the family, it's not just the appearance of being above reproach or blameless, but it's, it's actually being above reproach. And remember, as we go through all of these traits, we've got to understand that we're not perfect, and the leaders that we are looking for are also not perfect. But 
that's what we're to be striving for. We want to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So being above reproach, being blameless in your family life and leadership in your family, it doesn't mean that it's perfect, but it does mean that it's in order. The character part side of it. Now, as a husband, the leader is faithful to his wife. Now, does this mean that the leader has to be married in order to lead in the church? Honestly, kind of hope not, because otherwise, have a great day. <laughs> like, because I'm not. <laughs> um, but uh, honestly, it kind of depends on who you ask. Like, for some people, that's how they read the text. But for others, especially in light of Paul's other letters, where he says that people should remain single as he was, like, they read it differently. They tend to read it that if the elder overseer is married, that he shouldn't be married to somebody else. So, like in that culture, polygamy was a big thing. So, monogamy over polygamy. But another way to read it is that, you know, married husbands should be faithfully married. You know, they should be faithful where if they're not married, they should be chaste. So, as a husband, you're faithful to your wife. And then Paul moves on to the children. He says that they should believe and aren't open to, the, child, uh, to the, the charge of being wild and disobedient. That they should believe it demonstrates the candidate's spiritual leadership within his home. As one commentator writes, this additional requirement that the elder be capable of influencing his own children to become Christians it demonstrates Paul's conviction that effective spiritual leadership in the home suggests the probability of effective spiritual leadership in the church. So Paul looks to the behavior of the children and that they should not be wild and disobedient. Wild here literally means inability to save. And for a picture of what this looks like, it's if you think about the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells, the prodigal son, before he returns, when he's asking for his inheritance and he goes off into a distant country and he wastes his money, wastes his life, really, that's what wild is in this context, how they're talking. And so, you know, Paul is saying that the leader's kids are not to be like that. They're not to be wild in that way, not to be disobedient. Now, again, this shows the leadership within the, the leader's home. Because the home is really a great training ground for Christian leaders. Now, following this, Paul moves to the second list of characteristics. And these are the things that the Christian leader should not be. Verse 7. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. So you see that Paul's drawing a connection with the previous verse, verse 6, where he says uh, the elder and overseer is managing their family in that verse, and he says, since they manage God's household. And so the wording here is that, that there is... Uh, it's being a steward, being God's steward. Somebody who's taking care of something that belongs to God. In this instance, it's the church. And again, he says that this person must be blameless or above reproach. But then he follows that up with five negative characteristics. Author F.D. Geely writes that since the office of bishop is one of authority and power, the vices named are those to which persons in such power are tempted. And so let's look through this list and see how these vices, these prohibitions, apply to leaders. The first one is that the overseer is not to be overbearing. This is a common trait among leaders, especially newer leaders. 
You know, I remember when I was first promoted to a supervisor role at the Plasma Center that I worked at a long, long time ago. I, I became overbearing. You know, I had this arrogance all of a sudden and uh, cropped up, and, and I thought that I knew everything and could do no wrong, which was dumb. <laughs> um, needless to say, it did not work out well. I was 21, so I didn't know what I was doing anyway. Um, didn't work out well with my employees, but the same thing can happen to a Christian leader who's overbearing. You know, when it's my way or the highway, that, that's a big red flag. And at first, people may follow you, thinking that you've got something that other leaders don't, that you're driven, but when you drive others so hard that you start leaving a wake of people behind you who are just spent and just, just totally, you know, almost dead, that, that's a bad sign. So you can't be arrogant, you can't be overbearing. But the second trait that Paul looks at is not being quick-tempered. And the point here is that you can control your emotions. It's not that you're emotionless, but that you have them under control. So if we're to become like God, one of the traits that God says of himself in Exodus 34, 6 is that he's slow to anger. My Bible verse that I'm working on that's on my little wristband uh, is James 1, 19. And uh, it's, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Having control over your emotions, it's really important when you're leading. And it gives, really, it's an opportunity for trust. Like if you have, if you're always flying off the handle, people are not going to trust you well. That moves us to the next in our list, not given to drunkenness. And like today, alcohol is vice that could ruin somebody's life. There are two issues with drunkenness with regards to leaders. First is you, you kind of lose control over yourself when you're drunk. Yeah. Yeah. Much like the emotional control of not being quick-tempered, having physical control or mental control over yourself is important. And when you're drunk, you are physically and mentally impaired. The other issue is that when you're given to drunkenness, you've allowed that harmful vice to basically have control over your life. And that starts to make you think less about others and more about yourself and how you can keep that going. You've ceded control of yourself, not to God, which would be proper, but to something else entirely. Now, one thing to note is this verse in Paul is not prohibiting drinking, but he's prohibiting drinking in excess. Now, the elder is also not to be violent. Now, there's a couple ways that we could define this. First is that the leader shouldn't be physically violent. Obviously, I don't think it's good if the leader appointed to a church is physically violent. Like that, that is, but that is likely something that needed to be said in Crete in the first century. But there's another way to look at this, which might be a little bit more relevant to our way of thinking today, because yeah, honestly, I'm not really sure how many church leaders are getting appointed that are physically violent. But um, when we look at the Greek word, there's another way to translate it, and that's as a bully. And, you know, that could be a physical thing, but it could also be a verbal thing, be mental. Um, as one writer put it, it should be noted that, that words often strike harder than fists. So we don't want to be violent physically or with our words. The final prohibition, though, is that the elder or overseer should not pursue dishonest gain. 
There are three ways that people have looked at this over time. The first is that the elders should be employed and employed legitimately. The second is that they should be honest in all the ways that deal with money in the church. And the third is that they shouldn't use Christian service to profit financially. Put simply, really, in however they deal with money, it just should be done with honesty and integrity. And that's Paul's list to Titus for the characteristics that we should be on guard against when appointing elders or overseers, pastors, any leader. Overall, they're to be blameless, which means they should not be overbearing or quick-tempered, shouldn't be given to drunkenness, violent, or pursuing dishonest gain. Now, as I've worked for a church for a while, as I've uh, since I've become a Christian in 2004, um, yeah, I, I've started to follow and know some pastors, uh, you know, who have written books or uh, they've just got really good uh, churches, been, been following. And uh, over time, having been in it now for a while, especially in leadership, you, you see a lot of these pastors who were fairly prominent, a lot of them have fallen. A lot of them have failed. And it's mainly because they've struggled with one or more of these traits that Paul talks about here. And because of that, they've done damage to their churches. They've done damage to their witness. They've either been removed from or removed themselves from the pastorate. And that's why we've got to pay attention to these things as we appoint new leaders in the church. Some of these churches who had dynamic leaders, like they were growing by the thousands, and they've fallen apart because of bad leadership. But the bad characteristics are not the only list that Paul is giving Titus here. He follows it up with how leaders should look. Verse 8. So instead of this bad list of characteristics, rather, he must be hospitable. One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So Paul starts by saying that the elder must be hospitable. One writer says that they should be devoted to the welfare of others. If you look at the Greek word, it's actually two words put together. There's philo, which is that word that is uh, like brotherly love, like Philadelphia. Uh, It could also be translated as friend. The other word is xenos, which is translated as stranger or foreigner. And so the leader is literally someone who is a friend of strangers or who loves strangers. He'll be willing to welcome others into his home. The elder should also be one who loves what is good. And this kind of goes against human nature. Like we tend to love the things that aren't good or we love the things that we call good. But who is the arbiter on what is and is not good? It's only God. Like God as creator is the only one who knows everything. And as we continue to follow him, that's how we learn because we continue to read and, and see what he says is good. Not what we say is good. I mean, that's kind of what got us into this mess in the first place. Adam and Eve took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it's because they wanted to be like God. That was, that was Satan's temptation, really, to Eve. He's like, you're not going to die, but they know you'll be like God. 
And so instead of following God's plan for what is good and evil, we've ever since wanted to follow our own. We wanted to say for ourselves what's good and what's evil. And how's that been working out for us? Not great. So we want to have leaders who love what is good. These leaders should also be self-controlled. You could translate this as prudent, thoughtful, and avoidance of extremes, being responsible for your actions, sober-mindedness. Sometimes we move too quickly into things that we shouldn't, but the self-controlled leader isn't going to do that. It doesn't mean that we take forever to make a decision, but just that we are measured and controlled. We make the best decision that we can based on all the information that we've gathered and the prayer that we've put behind it. Leaders should be upright, meaning they're just and fair with others, but they're also seeking to live by God's standards. They should be holy, meaning that they have a close walk with the Lord in their personal devotional lives and service. They're seeking to please God and only God. Finally, they're to be disciplined. And you know, we already talked about self-control, but it's a little bit different than the word that's translated self-control in the passage. Instead, it's more like the self-control that we find in Galatians 5.23. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about. D.G. Keel defines self-control there as the ability to avoid excesses, to stay within reasonable bounds. George Bethune says it's the healthy or the healthful regulation of our desires and appetites preventing their excess. And looking at both of these definitions, Jerry Jenkins writes that these descriptions imply what we all know to be true, that we have a tendency to overindulge our various appetites and consequently need to restrain them. So self-control is needed in many aspects of our lives, especially our leaders. The reason that we need self-control is because of our own sinful desires. You know, as Paul writes in Romans 7, 18, he says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do, uh, I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Being disciplined, it's extremely important for a leader in the church. Now, Paul's gone through the negative characteristics, family, uh, leadership characteristics, but now we're looking at the positive characteristics, or we see the positive characteristics here. But there's one more area that Paul instructs Titus, and this, I think, is the most important one of all of them, and that's in verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. As Christians, we have the greatest message ever. Now, there's more to life than just this physical realm that we experience. A lot of people do seem to realize that, that there's something more, but we believe that we have the true way to experience it, and that is through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the message that we hold firmly to. Without it, we're really no different than any of the social clubs that you can join. Without the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you know, we can do some pretty neat things in the world, but ultimately there would be no hope. It would be all for nothing. 
but we hold firmly to the trustworthy message. And not just for our sakes, but also so that we can encourage others. And we do that by sound doctrine, by, by sound teaching and instruction. And that's why in the, in the Timothy passage where Paul gives Timothy this list of characteristics for Christian leaders, in 1 Timothy 3.2, he has in that list able to teach. It's through the teaching of the word that we're able to encourage others because we are passing on that good message of the good news of Jesus, which is so wonderful. That's why we preach from Scripture. That's why we preach the gospel each week, because we want to encourage you. Like, we don't want it to just, you come in and you're just like, you leave here down. We want you to be uplifted. It's because of the gospel. Even when things seem rough, even when life's hitting you hard, God's got things under control. It doesn't always feel that way. Doesn't always feel that way from our end, but but it is a trustworthy message. At the end of this, uh, Paul says that the Christian leader, by holding firmly to that trustworthy message, he's able to refute those who oppose it. And that's what we're going to look at next week as we get into the next part of the letter of Titus. Paul provides us with a pretty good list here of what we should look for in our leaders. But it's funny, like if you look at this list, it it doesn't look like how we would normally hire somebody. I mean, I did a little bit of hiring when I was in leadership a long time ago. And we did. We focused on the skills and the talent and the knowledge of the person that we were hiring. But we're the church. We're not like the rest of the world. We do things a little differently. And skills, talent, knowledge, they are important. Absolutely. Like, you got to have those. But they're secondary. The person who will lead in the church has got to fit these character qualities. Otherwise, we're just going to set ourselves back. And what we're able to do or what God's able to do through us in this community. And this is a timely message for us. It's almost like we planned it, which we did. But as we continue with our pastoral search, we look for skill and talent and knowledge, but we also need to look for the character as well. We've got to look for godly character. We've got to work hard to find that. But as we close out today, I also want to challenge you. Paul's specifically talking about church leadership here, but we can take these principles and apply them in our own lives whether we're in leadership positions or, or not. Like if you are in a leadership position, you know, even in something outside the church, this could be a profile for how you should look in that position. Or even if you're not, are you hospitable? Are you a friend of strangers? Do you love what's good? Are you prudent, thoughtful, just, fair, holy, disciplined? If you're not, then I would challenge you One, to repent, and then to pray and ask God to give you really practical ways in your life, in your specific instant, you know, however you are are living your life specifically. Give have him give you practical ways that you can you can work to have that character in your life. To have God change you. That can be done. 
And I think that when we live that way, when, when we lead that way, we look way different than the way the rest of the world looks. And, and then a lot of times, that's going to open up the opportunity to share with others that trustworthy message that we hold firmly to. Because that's the point. Like we, we don't just hold on to this message for us. I mean, we got to give it out. Have the grace that you've been given. Have the overflow of that. And we give that to others. And when they look at us and they're like, you are weird. Why? You know, you've got that, that answer for the hope that you have. Because you have hope in the face of despair, really. Because, I mean, if you really think about this world, the way that it goes, even if you just think about life in general, that's a despairing thought without Jesus Christ and without God. And so, always be ready to have an answer. Lead in a way that shows that. And also, as we are, are preparing to have new leadership in this church, these are things that we need to be looking for. And so as we close out today's message, uh, I'm going to pray for our time of communion and uh, also just kind of pray for us as we continue to move forward with this uh, pastoral search. And so if you would pray with me as we get ready to close out. Heavenly Father, Father, we uh, just come before you in need of your leadership, Lord. We need to be able to see the person who has these qualities that you've already picked out for us, that you know is going to be best for Maple Grove as we move forward. And so, Father, uh, I just pray that you would help us as a congregation, help our, our search committee team, help our leadership, our elders. We just pray for, pray for them that they will be able to make that decision that you want and need us to make. And so, Lord, we also, um, we also just come before you today just to thank you as well because we can't do this without the gracious gift that you gave us in your son Jesus. You know, he sits at your right hand interceding for us because he loves us, because you love us. And he came down and, and went to the cross to take our sin, our punishment, so that we can come before you boldly approaching the throne of grace with our, our prayers and, and our intercessions. And, and so, Lord, we take this time in our service to remember that as well. To remember the body that was broken, the blood that was spilled. And, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.